1: Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books Podcast. I'm Helen Barrett. This is the third of three programmes in which we will talk to authors of the six books shortlisted for the FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. This week, big ideas. We're looking at the two shortlisted books that take as their themes radical solutions to problems of work and society. We're delighted to be joined on the line from San Francisco by Annie Lowry, author of Give People Money, and Jeremy Hymans from New York, co-author of New Power, How It's Changing the 21st Century and Why You Need to Know. And I'm joined in the studio by Martin Sandbu, FT Economics commentator, who has written widely on these themes. Welcome all. Annie, let's start with you. Give us the elevator pitch for Give People Money.
0: Yeah, so this is a book um, about universal basic incomes, which is the idea that a government would give everybody, every citizen money, um, something like a pension payment for all. And so, you know, some of the arguments of this um, have to do with, you know, efficiency in the welfare state and that kind of thing. But I think that the sort of deeper philosophical point is that perhaps um, in societies of abundance where the real problems have to do um, instead with equity and who has what, perhaps providing this as kind of a uniform and universal form of, of social insurance.
1: Jeremy, I'll give you a shot at describing as briefly as you can the central idea of your book, New Power.
2: So, you know, New Power is really a book about how you exercise power in the 21st century in a world that is chaotic and hyperconnected. And our argument is that uh, in order to exercise power now, you need to understand power as a current. So if you think of the metaphor that we draw a contrast between what we call old power, power as currency, the kind of power that we've traditionally exercised, you hoard it up, uh, you spend it, uh, and the kind of power that you can't fully control, but that is a surge of energy based on mass participation. And the question then is how do you deploy Uh, and harness that energy. And what we're seeing around the world today is um, many uh, of the organisations and leaders that are kind of coming out on top, for better and worse, are mastering uh, new
1: power. Thank you both. Both excellent books that crystallise urgent issues. Um, This prize will go to the book that provides the most compelling and enjoyable insights into modern business. Annie, what do you think... Typical business readers, a chief executive, say, or a banker, rather than a politician, would learn from your book, Give People Money, about universal basic income? You know,
0: where I think it's especially relevant for the business community um, is in thinking about um, if you have, you know, a class of consumers um, that are incapable of accessing your products, right? If part of the issue, especially here in the United States, is that alongside abundance you have a tremendous amount of, of poverty and thus in some cases a slower and more sclerotic economy than you would have otherwise. Um, you know, is the kind of world in which things are more equal a better one for business as well um, in terms of not just consumers but also, you know, talent pools, right? Would we be releasing ingenuity? Would we be creating more entrepreneurs, Um in a world where where people were not um, still having concerns about just basic basic subsistence levels and, and, and living, um, so that's the that's the the place where I think it really intersects with with thinking um, in businesses and by corporate leaders.
1: And Jeremy, what are the lessons for business readers from your book?
2: Well, I think it has kind of pretty broad implications. So um, in terms of business models, we see these models emerge for example, an Airbnb that uses these new power dynamics to create very huge, scalable businesses um, that challenge incumbents that are based on old power models, Right, the hotel industry. We also see it has pretty big implications for you know, marketing and how you engage consumers. So I think that the brands that are figuring out how do you actually not just make something that is desirable, uh, that, is, that is something that people admire, but that is something that... Gives people a real stake in which they can participate, in which they have agency. You know those kinds of businesses and brands, um, you know, are winning. And then thirdly, there's a lot of implications for the way you think about management. So in a world of these proliferating new power values, um, you have to think differently about traditional authority, um, the way you structure um, that again harnesses um, people's appetite to participate in the workplace in ways that may not be a particularly good match with kind of 20th century managerialism.
3: I'd love to follow up on that and and provoke both of you uh, a little bit on what these ideas mean for business, because it seems to me that business leaders, uh, for different reasons, should really be kind of horrified by the prospects that you both set out. I mean, uh, uh, Jeremy, that that you you distinguish between old power being like currency and new power being like current, which is a wonderful image. But most business leaders are sort of they're where they are because they like to give orders and take decisions and steer things. They like power as currency, uh, and now they have to face this world where actually power is dispersed and distributed. It's much more difficult, isn't it? And and Annie, uh, you write about UBI, and you describe very well how it's also about power, because one of the arguments for UBI is that workers have the outside option, they can always leave a bad job, that too tilts the playing field away from central management and bosses towards workers, which may be a good thing. But in both cases, I can sort of see why business leaders and top CEOs might find the world that you're describing, both of you, as something to dread rather than something to welcome. I don't know who wants to have a stab at that first.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting point, and certainly I think that, that um, uh, you know, business leaders are, are perhaps designed to, to and interested in, in, in consolidating power and consolidating capital, um, but I happen to be here in San Francisco, and as part of reporting the book, I talked to a number of tech leaders who are sort of horrified in some ways of what they see coming across the horizon, right, where you can have multi-billion dollar businesses that employ very few people um, and uh, that they are very concerned that they're creating technologies that are going to make the world a better place, but at the cost of putting a lot of people out of the job. Um, so driverless cars being a kind of canonical example, but there's many of them. Um, and I think that that's actually why a surprising number of business leaders, especially in tech, are actually really interested in UBI. So I think there's a funny, a funny way in which it, it cuts both ways. Um, But a lot of the most dire predictions about the future of work um, and the future of the consumer economy, I I do think, come from from people who believe that that these businesses might um, have grand upsides in terms of technologically making the world a more interesting and better place, but also great downsides in in really hurting the labor and the consumer market.
3: I hear echoes of Doctor Frankenstein here, uh, Jeremy. Uh, what about your idea? Isn't this just going to make business more difficult?
2: Well, you know, yes, it's threatening in some ways, but it's also just the kind of the emerging reality. There's not much we can really do to put the genie back in the bottle. So the question, if you're a you know if you're a corporate CEO, is what do you do with this? Right? Um, what kinds of business model innovations can you begin to experiment with that? protect you from the fact that, you know, many of the biggest new businesses are being built on these new power dynamics, right? Be it an Airbnb or a, or a Facebook. You know, again, the, the kind of managerialism and, and, and an emphasis on expertise that served businesses well in the 20th century, um, you know, we need to now essentially reprogram a lot of businesses to value a different set of things, right? So, um, yes, it's scary. Uh, but it's also, um, I think, an area that's rich with opportunity. And we do see examples of, you know, big old power businesses that are beginning to to move in this direction and and seeing some some benefits from that.
1: A period of economic crisis often gives birth to radical ideas, and both these books are about radical ideas. They deal in radical ideas. If you think about... um, Roosevelt's New Deal of the 1930s, or even in the UK, the welfare state after the Second World War, you can see that periods of crisis result in big, bold ideas. And these were fresh ideas at one point. Um, Why, in your view, do do you think we need such visions? Is UBI or New Power the equivalent of the New Deal for the 21st century after the economic crisis of 2007?
2: Well, I think, you know, speaking on new power, um, a lot of this is a response to people's dissatisfaction with institutions, you know, politically, economically. So because people um, have an expectation to participate uh, that is often met by the the technological platforms in their lives, but is hopelessly not met by by government, uh, you know, by political institutions, um, they're increasingly mistrustful of those institutions. So, so the implication of this is, is pretty big. Um, and, you know, it does demand that we rethink institutions and that we create constructs that are potentially more participatory. And I think that's where the, the, the concepts of UBI and new power kind of do overlap, which is that one of the insights of UBI is that um, you're essentially giving people more agency to decide how um, they spend their money. So you can think of it as kind of... Um, decentralizing redistribution rather than the kind of 20th century uh, sort of leftist um, centralizing redistribution in which those resource allocation decisions about how money um, should be spent were largely made by governments and, and, and used in the form of government programs. So I do think there's something quite interesting about the way that UBI sort of meets this need for people to get their hands on uh, institutions and, and make decisions about their lives um, in ways that are perhaps a little bit more decentralized than the models of the 20th century.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, if we were having this conversation 100 years from now, um, I would see I would the change as sort of starting in the 1970s when you begin to see deindustrialization, globalization, automation, and then the rise of the information economy. Um, we're still not totally clear on how that's going to shape out and how that's shaping the economy. But um, it's led to to wage stagnation and a series of increasingly painful recessions um, that I think have again and again brought up this notion that that people need something different and that the old rules aren't working anymore. Um, And I think that the Great Recession um, certainly brought that to the fore um, in terms of popularizing some populist economics um, in the United States in Europe and elsewhere around the world, right? The sense that that even a very good economy is no longer delivering for a large number of people. Um, And I think if there was another recession, it would just make it all the more clear. Um, uh, And so, uh, but yeah, I I do. I think that these recessions have been um, interesting and popularizing and and that the roots we'll see go back to that kind of period of time in the 1970s when the economy really started to change.
3: And you—you you mentioned thinking about this. You're imagining being a hundred years down the line and, and looking back at this. Let's not go quite that far ahead, but I'm curious how you both uh, think about the likelihood that your ideas uh, will spread and be embraced and so on. How much resistance do you encounter when you are, well, in your research for the book, but also when you talk about your book now? I mean, do you think Annie that? we will see UBI implemented properly in in any country anytime soon. And, uh, Jeremy, what sort of resistance or embrace do you see? Uh, You say it's inevitable, this this change in power, but there's still a question of whether you go along with it or try and resist it.
0: Yeah, I've been amazed by how quickly this seems to be coming something like um, political reality in, in a number of economies. Um, And I'm not sure that, you know, I guess if we were talking in 20 years that you would see a full-fledged UBI in any OECD country, Um, but I think you'd see a lot of movement towards one. Um, And maybe that's, you know, uh, a not entirely universal cash transfer. Um, Maybe that's instead of providing annual tax credits, providing cash that's distributed monthly, something like that. So there's a lot of for policy ingenuity between a big universal $1,000, 1,000 pound a month UBI and more marginal steps towards it. And I think that the history of policymaking has shown that, you know, you tend to, instead of going radical, get put on one of those kind of more marginal paths. And I think it is absolutely inevitable um, that that will happen and, and not unlikely that we would start to see something like a true UBI someplace in an OECD country.
2: I was just going to say, I think in terms of new power, you know, we think of it as, as more of a phenomenon than as a as an inherently good thing. Um, so to to us, the big question around new power and its future is more, you know, who will master these methods um, first? Um, and so I think the big story of our age at the moment is kind of the co-optation of new power um, by by forces that are really ultimately either extractive or or authoritarian. So you think of the big tech platforms like Facebook, you know, there's no platform better than Facebook at kind of harnessing uh, our participation, but, but we have a very asymmetrical relationship with it. Um, and equally, you know, the rise of demagogues from Trump to Bolsonaro that use this particular model where they are very good at unleashing the agency and creativity of their supporters, but they do that in service of a, of a very authoritarian value set. So I think that the big question is, you know, who's going, you know, there's a bit of a race to mobilisation that we describe in, in the book. And I think that's going to be the big question in the next 20 or 30 years. And I'm not I'm not hugely optimistic that the good guys uh, are going to be ahead in that race.
3: I would really love uh, for listeners to get a sort of very quick sample of each of your uh, books, which, you know, I'm not going to have you read out anything, but I'd love for you both to tell a quick story from the book Uh I mean Jeremy um because I have a 6-year-old son I do a lot of Lego and you have a story about Lego in there I would really love for you to very quickly tell us how Lego uh embraced new power and uh, and did better as a result and Annie maybe can tell us one story from you you went reporting so many places you actually saw places where UBI has been put into practice uh, through, you know, donor initiatives and experiments and so on. So it, it'd be lovely to just hear a quick story from each of you that illustrates your uh, your concept.
2: Yes, well, Lego um, uh, early 2000s is sort of actually in a lot of trouble. It's on the brink of bankruptcy. It sort of had, had grown and diversified too much and kind of lost contact with its with its core, uh, you know, with its, its core consumers. And interestingly, the way it comes back from the brink and, and rebuilds, uh, and has a revival, is by sort of finding this part of its fan base that had self-organized, that they had previously ignored. And and these were what were called the adults, the adult fans of Lego. And, you know, they have thought this was a slightly weird bunch, like who are these adults who are still playing with Lego? Um, best we ignore them. But actually, um, they turned out to be this incredible source of vitality for the brand. So they were already meeting up, self-organizing uh, all over the world in these groups of fans. They were making extraordinarily innovative and interesting designs for Lego sets on their own. So Lego decides to sort of lean into this and build a whole architecture around the apples So they create this um, essentially kind of product development pipeline in which platforms were built so that people could uh, propose their own designs, um, essentially... Um, Demonstrate existing demand for those designs by having people kind of vote for and support the designs and then commercialize a bunch of the user created designs and with revenue sharing back to the, to, to the, to the AFOL. Um, and they built this whole infrastructure, which means that they actually really cultivated these local um, self organizing groups that were not, were not within and under the control of Lego, but was sort of this interesting ecosystem outside of it. Um, and so this was a big part if you you know if you ask the, the leaders of Lego a big part of how they kind of go back to being uh, at one point um, the most loved and valuable brand in the world
3: it's amazing uh, it's such an interesting company too uh, any let's let's hear one story of one of the places where you went reporting where they've tried to put UBI into practice
0: yeah so um, we haven't talked too much about you know the arguments for for just giving people cash as opposed to giving them um, No medical care or education or food or food vouchers, that kind of thing. Um, But there uh, is a region in Great Lakes region in Kenya where uh, a nonprofit has started providing a UBI to a number, about 8,000 Kenyans in a number of villages. Um, And these are folks who are living uh, in extreme poverty by World Bank standards, so on less than about $2 or, you know, a pound 50 a day. And uh, the reason that they're able to do it is that basically everybody has a cell phone. Um, Kenyans love cell phones. They're cell phone mad. And they have a pretty advanced banking infrastructure, that's all done by cell phones. So these folks, um, while I was actually present in one of the villages, started receiving their their 20 shillings per month. And um, it was really amazing because it wasn't just that they were um, receiving this additional income. It was that they knew that they would be receiving it monthly for a period of no less than 12 years. And so that both allowed them to just buy more things, right, um, things like fishing nets, more food, um, in some cases things like solar uh, panels, but um, also just gave them some assurance that they wouldn't be slipping back into the kind of poverty that they had been in before, Um And there's kind of these continual questions about people misusing the money, but it was amazing seeing them use it and and virtually all for things that we would all agree are are both good and socially productive, right? Putting more calories in kids' bellies, um, perhaps starting a small business, paying off a debt, that kind of thing. So that was one of the great joys of of reporting the book was being able to go and see that.
1: (sighs) We're out of time, I'm afraid, but let me thank Annie Lowry and Jeremy Hymans for joining us on the FT Business Books podcast. Also, thanks to my co-host, Martin Sandabu, and to our producers, Yanina Conboy and Patricia Nielsen. You can read more about the FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award and catch up with the first two podcasts in this series at ft.com slash book award or follow the story on social media using the hashtag BBYA18. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin?